HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey there, welcome to The Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, we are with food writer, cookbook author, television personality, Gail Simmons. You definitely recognize her from Top Chef. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gail. Of course, Jake. I'm always happy to talk to you. Um, This is super exciting for me, not just because, obviously, you're such a well-known and just positive figure in food media, but I was doing like a bunch of research just about you and your path and everything around kind of your history with food. And I think it's just so diversified. Um, That is what kind of really got me super interested in kind of your history in food and media and restaurants. So I kind of want to start with how you got into food. Obviously you are from Canada, um, but what did, what was the journey, um, to food in Canada and then to New York City. Oh, God, how much time do you have? Um, I will keep it short. <laughs> I mean, as short as I can. But, uh, you know, my journey was was circuitous, I like to say. Um, it was not a straight path, nor would I want it to have been. Um, I think that that's sort of the best part about it. It was not a given. It was not something I set my eyes on early on and knew I wanted to do and, um, you know, had these... 10-year goals and planned them out. None of that happened. When I started out thinking about being part of the food world, it was uh, the 90s. <laughs> I was graduating college and really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And remember that these were like the very early days of food television. I mean, so many shows that mm-hmm. we all just are so used to being on air and the culture of food really didn't exist. It was the beginning of the internet so there weren't blogs there was not social media like perhaps there was Facebook at colleges but like it was actually before I mean I was just graduating college before Facebook so you know it really uh, was far before there was so many obvious food paths and food media paths as well Um, and you know I graduated from McGill University I loved school and I did well at school but Unlike a lot of my girlfriends, I did not have some obvious trajectory. I did not know what I wanted to do. I did not want to go to graduate school. Nothing really appealed to me in academics. And I came from sort of a a home culture. And so many of my girlfriends, my close girlfriends did too, where everyone was sort of expected to go to graduate school or go get a job in a profession that seemed very obvious. You know, the doctor, lawyer, educator, fields and it was not obvious to me because none of those things felt like me um but it didn't know what I felt like either I didn't know who I was or what I was really good at that 
I would find also satisfying as a career. And so I went home to my parents' house and I moved into the basement and cried a lot. And the one thing I knew for sure, you know, through a sort of series of self-discovery exercises, talking to family, friends, and, and people I knew who did things that they loved, it occurred to me, I kind of realized that what I loved was eating and writing and cooking and uh, traveling. I had been lucky enough to do a lot of travel in the first 22 years of my life and planned on doing a lot more. My father is from South Africa. Um, my mother was from Canada where we lived in Toronto, but uh, she was from Montreal, but her whole family lived all over the place. And my parents were great travelers. My mom was a great cook. She actually ran a cooking school out of her home, uh, out of our home when we were growing up as a way to kind of stay home. She was a very spontaneous cook when the rest of the world in the 80s and 90s were like discovering their microwaves and TV dinners and fast food. She was, you know, going to the Chinese markets and cooking from scratch. Not complicated or fussy at all. Very, very simple and fresh, but still really ahead of her time in a lot of ways. But even with all of that, a career wasn't obvious because none of those things were like what your parents wanted you to do for a living. You know what I mean? Um, And so it was only sort of a few months after graduating when I realized that, well, maybe there's something to writing because I loved to write and I loved to write about food and cooking. And I had been writing these very rudimentary restaurant reviews for my student paper at McGill. And I thought, well, perhaps that's something I could pursue. And I landed a job at a magazine in Toronto called Toronto Life, which is an amazing city magazine, not unlike New York Magazine or LA Magazine. It was a monthly, is a monthly. Mm -hmm. And really it was there that I realized this was a job. Um, I fell in love with the food critic and the food editor and all the editors there who taught me about the world of media. And that's what media was, by the way, back then. Media meant sort of very specific things 20 years ago um, because the online world was really just starting to bloom. So the word media really meant print media, newspapers, magazines, books. Um, and I fell in yeah. love with magazines, you know, that middle that middle ground between long form books and, and the urgency of newspapers where I could really sort of dig into a subject. And from there I went to work for a newspaper in Canada And it was at the newspaper where I started writing a little more food stuff. I worked for the weekend section of a a newspaper called the National Post. So I was working for a weekly within the daily newspaper. And we did all the food coverage and travel and entertainment coverage, celebrity coverage, lifestyle stuff. And that's where I sort of found my niche. And so I went to my editor to say, you know, okay, I've decided. I figured it out. This is my beat. I want to be a food writer. But there were so few opportunities in Canada because most of the media, print media that we consumed, was American. Besides the newspapers and the few magazines that were made in Canada, you know, a, a lot of the food magazines I was reading were out of New York. Gourmet, Bon Appetit was out of L.A. at the time. Mm. Um, of course, Food and Wine magazine, Saveur, those were what I was consuming, but they were not in Canada. Um, so when I expressed this to my editor, he very graciously sort of looked at me and said, well, that's awesome. I'm glad you have found your passion, but here's the thing, Gail, you don't know anything about food. So that's great. So now your job is to go learn about it because you can't just be a reporter on a subject that you aren't an expert in. You need to sort of like go to the front lines. And he was perfectly right. I liked to eat. But just because you like to eat doesn't make you a good writer. And how do you become competitive in that field and get a leg up when it's, when it's you know, something that a million people want to do and you're 22 years old and you barely know how to, um, you know, make pasta. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, it was sound advice. It still is sound advice, actually, because that's the question I get more than anything else from people who are in their, that same position now. Um, graduating from school and I get that question a lot Um, and so I quit my job at the newspaper and I moved to New York and which was you know the capital of food the capital of media and I enrolled in culinary school and I learned how to be a cook that was sort of like the beginning of it all so I don't know if you know but uh, I actually also worked for Danielle Belude Um, I was at Easton I was at Feast and Fet in 2012, and it was honestly one of the most 
incredible experiences working for that restaurant group. Um, oh, I'm you sure. That's obviously so great have to had hear. yes, but you have had stints at some of New York's best restaurants. What was it like now, kind of hearing this discussion about you wanting to learn about kind of food at the the, the front lines and finally being there? Well, I should say when I went to culinary school, I finished my culinary school and I needed to do an apprenticeship to to sort of finish off the degree, complete the degree. And my initial plan was, oh, I'm just going to go work for a magazine. I'll go get an internship at Gourmet in their test kitchen or something back in the day when Gourmet was at its peak. And then I'll be great. And then I can go back to Canada and be, you know, an expert and I can just go get any job I want. Well, two things happened. One, uh, my culinary school, which is now called the Institute of Culinary Education, uh, the person there who was in charge of getting helping everyone with their internships and externships told me that uh, that wasn't a good idea, which sort of broke my heart. But he explained to me that the best thing for me to do to really get experience would be to um, work in a kitchen. And for me, that was sort of nothing I wanted to hear because that was not the shortcut to becoming a food writer. Um, but with some explaining, he got me to do just that. And so I went to work in two really big kitchens. Um, before I went to work for Danielle, much before. Um, I worked at uh, Le Cirque 2000 when it was back in the Palace Hotel, a famed, acclaimed at the time, four-star yeah. restaurant. Um, and then, and it wasn't, it actually it wasn't an incredibly positive experience for me there uh, for all the reasons that have sort of come to light in in recent years, not necessarily just about this restaurant, but um, but I was the only woman on a line of probably 40 cooks and I was one of the youngest and I wasn't treated great. I, I was not abused, um, but I was not treated well. I was not respected certainly as a woman or as you know the lowest rung on the totem pole, um, except for actually by the chef himself, an incredible man by, named Sota Kuhn, who didn't necessarily uh, call me by my first name or make eye contact with me very often because I was you know the lowest <laughs> rung on the, on the ladder. Yeah. But him and his executive shoe chefs were actually very kind to me. And I worked there for several months and I got a really great taste of the restaurant. But ultimately, I knew I didn't want to be a chef and I didn't love the culture there. And I wanted to find another restaurant that I felt would be a better fit for me. And so when I went to him and left, he actually told me that he was really impressed with the fact that even though he knew I didn't want to be a chef and that I wanted to write, that I was um, sticking it out. And I really... I was very honored by that, that he'd paid attention to my path. And from there, I went to work for at Vong, which was Jean-Georges Vong Richten's kind of Thai-infused yeah. restaurant at the time, which was just fantastic. And it was a, a far better fit for me, a smaller kitchen, a really interesting kitchen, cooking with some of the most exotic ingredients at the time, um, things I had never seen before, Szechuan peppercorns and sea beans and... Um, edamame paper and I got to cook with lobster and pickled ginger every day and you know make you know just beautiful beautiful food with them and that kitchen was was a really amazing place although I still was the only woman on the line there but it was just a different team it wasn't as rigid in French it wasn't you know it wasn't an open kitchen so it wasn't as classic and and serious and the chefs there welcomed me and I worked there for a while um, you know, again, I was I was doing garmage, I was doing hot appetizers, and I and I worked on a bunch of you know a couple of stations, um, all always knowing that I just wanted to write about it. So I got a lot of experience and really learned the language of the kitchen from them, uh, which was a really great thing that I'm so glad in retrospect I did, even though at the time I had no idea how I would apply it. Um, so they were you know they were both they were both invaluable for sure. Um, and then from there, I actually knew I wanted to go back to writing. I wanted to use my brain a little more uh, because, you know, cooking at a lower level in a kitchen is really manual labor in a lot of ways. You're executing someone else's vision. You're not thinking creatively. You are literally manually chopping the carrots, the pounds and pounds of carrots that go into a bigger dish that someone else created. Yeah. So you're just following direction every day. Um, and I, and I wanted it to breaks your body. It breaks your body. It breaks your, well, it body. It breaks it's your mind. Incredibly physical and emotionally very taxing. Um, and if I knew I wanted to be a chef uh, as a long term plan, I would have stuck with it. But I, I wanted to get some other um, 
you know, skills that I thought were required for me to ultimately reach that goal of being in food media in some capacity um, and writing. So from there, I actually very serendipitously landed a job working for Jeffrey Steingarten, who um, at the time was the food critic. Um, yeah, and I, he is an icon. Um, the food critic the of the magazine, everything. the man who ate everything, the OG, uh, really one of the greatest food writers of our time, still living. Um, still one of the most brilliant men I know. And um, I landed a job with him and worked for him for two years as his recipe and research assistant. I did everything with him. I wrote his second book with him, uh, which was called It Must Have Been Something I Ate. All the essays in there were essays we wrote together for Vogue. Um, and I wrote all, you know, two years worth of his essays, his recipes, his travel around the world. Um, you know, I... I really just like I worked with him at his home every day in his kitchen and his office um, and it was an unbelievable experience he really introduced me to the world of of New York food uh, and American you know food culture in a way I wouldn't never know you know he would travel to Paris to spend a month researching the perfect cocoa vin or Thailand to learn about northern Thai curries and then he would come back and we would research Law, the laws of cheese pasteurization in America. And then we would test pizza ovens around the city to figure out how to make the perfect pizza dough at home. And I would be making dough uh, for two months straight or measuring the sugar content of peaches. You know, it was just incredible work. And um, he introduced me to so many amazing people who I then leaned on in so many ways in the years to come. And one of those people was Danielle Boulou. Um, who always was very kind to me. And so when I was ready to leave Jeffrey, I went to Danielle, not looking for a job because again, I wanted to be a food writer. I was looking for him to sort of connect me to Ruth Reichel or Barbara Fairchild or one of those people who could help me get a job in a magazine. Yeah. And instead, it was actually just after 9-11 and there were no jobs available in magazines and um, especially not for a non-American. It was very hard to get visas. And instead of connecting mm. me to those people, he said, well, why don't you just come work for me? And it was not what I planned to do. But when Danielle Ballou offers you a job, you just take the job. You don't even ask questions. Like that is my takeaway um, for anyone who asks. Just take the job because he's awesome. And that's what I did. And so I went to work for him, yeah, for three years. Uh, this was well before your time. You were like, you know, you were not yet. Uh, probably, <laughs> yes, this was yes. in like 2003. Um and I worked for him for yes. three years. Yeah, or two, yeah, 2002 to 2004, I worked for him. And I helped him with marketing and PR. I wasn't in his kitchen, um, but I worked with all his chefs in all his restaurants every day. Um, I did all his special events with him, all his charity work. I helped him with three books that he wrote. I opened two restaurants with him. Um, and, uh, and that was sort of like an MBA in restaurant life. Because um, working for him was just, you know, I got to touch every aspect of the restaurant business. And... He had a really small team at the time, so far far fewer restaurants than he has now. Um, and he was just sort of like my fairy godfather in New York City. What was the difference? Um, kind of, because you really got to see both sides of the yeah. coin between being with Jeffrey and going around and writing about restaurants and then actually being behind that restaurant, helping represent them to the same writers that you were just working for. Um, it was eye-opening in a lot of ways um, to, because, you know, the most interesting thing to me going to work for Danielle versus only having worked in kitchens or for magazines and newspapers until then um, was that you never thought about the bottom line. When you're working in a kitchen, someone tells you to cut carrots. Mm. You don't ask where the carrots came from. You don't ask how much the carrots cost. You cut the carrots the way they want them to be cut, you know? Um, and same goes for magazines. When I worked for Jeffrey, he said, I'm going to Thailand for a month. I never asked what his budget was. And he had a bookkeeper who handled all of that. And he had Anna Wintour who was managing, you know, his his finances and, and dictating that. I just booked his flights and uh, never questioned it as long as he didn't get in trouble for it. And um, so going to work at a restaurant, even a four-star restaurant like Danielle runs, um, it's a business first and foremost. And I was on the executive team. So, so for me, the most amazing thing was learning about marketing 
and how marketing and and the budget of the restaurant went hand in hand, how PR affected the bottom line and the value the value of it, um, the events that he invested in, the charity work he did, how it all affected actually getting people in seats every night and then what he needed to do to get people in seats to cover the costs for not just his ingredients but his hundreds of staff in all of his restaurants and catering business and and all the work that he did you know paying the rent paying um you know his purveyors the dry cleaning the floral expenses um you know all the things that we as Mm. diners take for granted when we walk into a restaurant oh the florist olivier incredible incredible florist so right feast and fet catered my wedding in 2008 so (laughs) he owed me one i made him do it but but yeah yeah, it was a full circle moment um but but yeah you know it was really learning about the business i worked really closely with the man who was his chief of operations uh brett trucy who really was a mentor to me and uh mentor of all was a woman named georgette farkas who ran his marketing for 20 years and She is like a oh goddess. My God, and I mean, I, it literally broke my heart when Rotisserie Georgette closed. Me it's where my husband did. proposed to me. It's, no it's way. Just because I was very close. Yeah. I was very close with uh, Chad Browse. Of course. Um, I love Chad. That's right. He worked for yep, yep. opened up Rotisserie. Um, so yeah. So that's very, very. Me too. I loved very, Rotisserie. It was where. Incredible. My parents, you know, I delivered my children at Mount Sinai Hospital just a few blocks away. And the night that um, my daughter was born, my parents and my in-laws went to celebrate together at Rotisserie Georgette, too. So lots of great, lots of great moments at that beautiful restaurant. And, you know, and with Georgette, we're still in touch. Um, it's such a beautiful tie into like the power of restaurants and kind of yeah. food, bringing people together, especially around these celebratory moments. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the thing also about transition. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, 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 please, please finish. I was just saying that, um, you know, what was amazing about Danielle was the team of chefs that were working in his kitchen who have all since gone on to become, you know, empire builders themselves and people like David Chang and Andrew Carmelini, um, and, you know, so many others who, you know, I walk into restaurants almost daily and my husband laughs because I know in almost every restaurant I go to, I know a server or a captain or a manager or an owner or a chef or a cook or, a, you know, um, and it's all because they all were my family at Danielle. It's just an amazing network of people. And I, I'm thinking about all of them every day these days, especially, and, and uh, you know, want to help them all succeed because we're in such a difficult time for restaurants. Um, but after, you know, I worked for Danielle for three years, and it was only after Danielle I went to work at Food & Wine magazine. And it was at Food & Wine magazine that, you know, the world of food media really changed. And I was at Food & Wine for, for 15 years, um, 14 of them making Top Chef with them. So that was sort of like the big change. And then obviously one of the kind of incredible stories I got to hear um, just because I went to Aspen for the first time for the classic this past year um, was kind of your involvement in it. And how did that kind of begin and what was that process like, Um, especially tying in everything else you had already done? Right. It's funny to think back on it now again. I never really had a plan. So in hindsight, it all looks so clear how I brought all these things together and the path that it took me down. But it was not clear at all in the beginning. Um, I I went to work for Food & Wine after I left Danielle. Um, And I was working for them in a number of capacities. The two main things I was doing, I started in the marketing department and I soon took over the classic in Aspen. I was directing that event, which was a year-round job with a big team and, you know, a team in Aspen of operators and engineers and my team, um, you know, running the marketing and the, and the speakers and the, and the talent programming in New York. And, uh, right around the time that I took over the classic, Food & Wine got a call from Bravo saying they had just... Um, come off the success of their first season of Project Runway and they wanted to spin it off into the same sort of formula of show in all the different categories that at the time Bravo was working in, the first of which was food. You know, they had done Queer Eye and Queer Eye had had these five pillars, Mm -hmm. the five guys, the Fab Five. And um, each of them became the pillars of what Bravo's content at the time was founded on. Um, You know, the first was fashion, food, um, culture, pop culture, 
um, uh, uh, grooming and like style, style and yeah. and home and home design. And so they were doing food first and they came to Food & Wine wanting a partner to teach them about the world of food and chefs so that they could discover the next sort of crop of great talent. And that's what Food & Wine has always done so well with their Best New Chef platform. So um, Food & Wine took on the challenge and in exchange for helping with them and giving part of the prize for the show, they were allowed to have one of their editors on the judges table to represent the magazine on the show. So they sent me to... 30 Rock to do a screen test with Bravo. And um, I had also been doing four food and wine in a really small capacity, little food segments, cooking segments, because I cooked and had PR background and a culinary degree. Um, they put me through media training and I became the person at the magazine who did a lot of their media appearances and, you know, little two minute segments here and there on local news and the Today Show, things like that. So they sent me, not even knowing what a screen test was, to 30 Rock that day and told me that it was to audition to be on the judges panel of a food reality show. And I was petrified. I mean, this is not what I wanted to do because for me at the time in 2005, remember, um, reality was like Survivor. So that's what I envisioned when they yeah. told me what we were going to do. And when Flavor they told me Tom Colicchio, yes, exactly. That is what I <laughs> Imagine, like, how was I going to explain to my Jewish mother that I was in a reality competition show? Um, but as soon as I heard that Tom Colicchio was involved and he had signed on to be the top um, head judge, I knew that this was going to be a show being taken seriously and that at least would have really serious intentions about cooking. And, um, you know, they somehow liked what they saw in me when they put me on camera. And I flew to San Francisco that fall and we shot the first season of Top Chef. Um, and uh, even then, it, it wasn't clear that it would be a, a hit. Um, I sort of thought I would shoot the first season and then go back to my life running the Food One Classic, and we just kind of forget about it. And if it did well, great. And if it didn't, we would just go hide and continue the rest of our lives. Um, and um, I don't remember when it was. It wasn't at first. I mean, they ran the first season, and it did okay. And then they re-ran the first season, and that's when it sort of hit – audiences and people started taking notice and industry started taking notice and we got renewed for a second season and it was in the sort of end of the second season there was a little bit of scandal around that season in a few ways and that's when you know all all press is good press they say and it sort of catapulted yeah. the show and that was you know 15 years ago and here we are season 17 and going strong i love that um <laughs> i could never have imagined it i'll tell you that jake I mean, but that I think that's kind of the the beauty of having you walk us through this journey. Um, obviously, you you look at your career and you look at Top Chef, which is uh, which is so so iconic, um, and pretty much like you said, you would imagine that it was all very strategic, um, even if it was. <laughs> I wish I could say I was that How smart, Jake. Did- uh, I mean, I, I, I'm going to give you more credit than you will. <laughs> uh, but I think um, one of my favorite things has been what you've done with this platform. You've created incredible cookbooks, incredible columns with food and wine. What have been some of your highlights then throughout this journey uh, of ways that you've been able to kind of continue to do what you love? Um, I, you know, I've been able to do so many things that, that I never thought possible. You know, it's interesting, you asked at the beginning how I pulled all these things together. And I really feel like without knowing it, I was able to take all of the pieces of the things I did before, whether it was working in kitchens, working in marketing and public relations, writing, doing fact checking for a magazine or research. Um, and I use them all in my skill set in what I do now every day, both on Top Chef and in the rest of my career, um, you know, let alone things like the fact that I studied Spanish and French in my younger life uh, at college and at high school, um, because French was so much a part of the kitchens I worked in, and Spanish is part of every kitchen you work in in America. And so, so much of it has come in handy in unsuspecting ways. Certainly the travel I've done, the travel I did as a, as a child with my family, and the travel I've been able to do now um, have, have informed the way I cook, the way I eat, the way I talk about food and think about culture and the way that food and culture are woven together, um, and inseparable in so many ways. Um, 
and it's sort of like the lens through which I see the world. Um, so highlights, I mean, you know, the, 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 the platforms I've been able to work on in terms of some of the philanthropic work that I've done have been so incredibly um, satisfying and, and, and exciting to me to be able to use my voice to help um, pieces of my industry when they are at, at their, you know, most in need, um, moments like right now during this pandemic for sure, but also, you know, helping women in, in my industry, because even, even though I, um, had overall positive experiences, I know that our industry has a way to go to, to make the workplace much more equitable, not just for women, but for people of color, um, you know, gender equality. There are so, you know, and, and, um, and, equality in all in all possible ways um and so yeah. you know that is something that i i'm really happy to work towards and work on um, on a number of platforms um you know we all know that this industry is founded on on immigrants not just in the food that it brings to america but the workforce that it brings to america and so giving giving voice to immigrants and the diversity of this industry has been always really important to me. Um, and hunger issues, you know, people think that I, I live and work in this world of fine dining and it is in contrast to the fact that there are so many hungry people, not just in this world, but in this country. But in fact, they are two sides of the same coin. And I don't know a chef in this country who does not feel the need to feed people at all levels and give time from themselves and the organizations to be generous and to um, to feed those in need, uh, especially right now. And so I love that I've been able to sit on the boards of places like City Harvest in New York City and uh, work on big events all year round with organizations like City Meals on Wheels. Uh, Danielle Ballou was the chair, maybe still is, um, one of the co-chairs of that organization. And so I've done a number of projects with them. Um, the Food Bank for New York City, No Kid Hungry and Share Our Strength. Um, and then of course, smaller hunger organizations or um, you know, in different capacities too, like uh, Mazan, which is the Jewish um, answer to, yes. to hunger relief. Um, a, a platform my mother worked, worked and still works with in Canada. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of ways I've been able to, um, to bring awareness to these causes because of the platform that I work with. Um, and certainly on Top Chef as well, we've done some great work with these organizations. Um, but highlights from my career, I don't know, like, you know, writing my books was always really satisfying, even though it felt like giving birth to two other children and I don't need that many children. Um, <laughs> but, uh, or, you know, and just small triumphs. The, the, the fact that Top Chef has been around so long uh, with such a dedicated audience and we've made so many different spin-offs and and we have so many different arms to the brand has been amazingly satisfying um we've been nominated for an emmy for 12 13 13 years i can't remember maybe more in a row um since the show been on the has been on the air and we've won once and when i say we've won an emmy i don't mean in a food category we you know, we were nominated in a primetime category of overall outstanding reality series. And that, I'm not saying to boast, but it's no small feat for a small food cable show that started off um, really as this grain of sand in the world of television. And, and now even with all the different streaming categories, we still get this recognition on a national level. Uh, you know, it's something we're really, really proud of. And we amazing. spend a lot of time, uh, you know, we make, I, spend a lot of time making sure that Top Chef does what it does with integrity and purpose and really represents chefs and restaurants the best it can. Speaking of representing chefs, I, you brought up the kind of concept of what Top Chef was in the beginning, what reality television was, and hmm. obviously the kind of representation of chefs over the past 15 years has really changed and yes. the concept of chef personalities, chefs um, at the forefront and kind of using the chef brand to also lift up the restaurant and business has become kind of 
part of the game of if you want to open a restaurant. Yeah, it certainly has. And that is a new thing, even though we're all used to it. What is it's, it's true. So as you've kind of gone through this journey, what has been kind of the most rewarding process of seeing these chefs go on the show and then see success later on? I mean, I, I will say we're particularly proud of that. Um, at first, it was hard to measure that uh, if what we were doing was, uh, was making a point. Um, but actually, now that we're 17 year, uh, seasons into making Top Chef, I think that the most remarkable thing to come out of it is not awards or – I'm just plugging in my computer here. Sorry. Um, don't want to lose my battery. Um, is that of actually any reality show on television, our show has had the most success of contestants than any other. Um, Now, granted, measuring success is a relative term. The barrier to entry in the restaurant industry is lower than getting a recording contract or getting a really successful fashion brand, for example. However... Um, there is no show on television that has had its contestants. I'm not talking just winners because actually some of our most successful chefs to come out of our show are not the winners, but they are the runners up. Um, and I have a theory about that too, that we can talk about in a minute, but, um, you know, really no other show has had as many contestants open as many successful businesses often multiple restaurants, television shows of their own, product brands, cookbooks. I mean, the, the economy of Top Chef, if you measure, there's something over 200 restaurants in America have opened by Top Chef contestants since the show started. It has, it has changed the economy of restaurants in America, our show in a way. Um, you know, they are all now household names. People travel the country to eat at their restaurants and go to their book signings and see them at events and festivals around the country. Um, and, and that I think has been, you know, what we, what we measure our success of the show on, um, because it's just been so cool to watch. Um, and they've all done it in their own way and not all of them traditionally either. Some of them own, um, you know, fancy restaurants that serve the food that they cooked on the show, but others, you know, did food trucks or opened pop-ups or, you know, started a, a product line that was really successful. So there's just so many different ways that our contestants have, you know, um, made a mark and a, and a really lasting impact on the industry after they were on the show. And we, we gave them that platform. But we also like to say, like, yes, we gave them that platform, but we did not do the work for them. Um, it was all up to them. And they are just a remarkable group of people with a drive to succeed. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Now, past... Top Chef and obviously the continuation of that. What is next for you? What do you <laughs> want to keep doing? What do you want to do more of? I'm hoping I can eat out again. That's my first goal oh, because yes. as much as I love to cook um, and I'm, you know, I am in, in a lot of ways really um, loving being forced to spend three meals a day cooking for my family because that's an opportunity I don't get very often when I'm working um, and traveling for my job so much. So I'm really kind of relishing that and trying to see that as the silver lining to 
this forced shutdown. Um, but at the same time, my job isn't as a chef. I'm not a chef. I'm a cheerleader. I'm a, I'm a restaurant industry champion um, in the media. And so I feel a little bit powerless. And the most I can do is to help and support the chefs and restaurants that are suffering so much. And so um, the, in the immediate future, what's next is helping to get them to be able to safely open their restaurants. Not too early that it uh, is not wise and is dangerous from an illness standpoint, but mm. to make sure that anything I can do in my power to spread the word and awareness and speak to Congress and sign petitions and um, have my voice heard so that restaurants can get the support and funds they need to open and open safely when they are ready to um, and and return us to the incredible food culture and restaurant culture that this country has always known. Um, that's my first goal. Uh, once we figure that out, which I think will take more time than we imagine, sadly, um, yeah. you know, I, I am excited about a couple of TV projects that uh, I have in the works that I want to be shooting. You know, I, I'm also the host of Iron Chef Canada on Food Network Canada, and I hope to make it again soon. Um, I do a Wednesday show um, with Daphne Oz and Jamika Pessoa um, called The Dish on Oz, and I hope to be able to make more of that soon um, because that's really about cooking and, and figuring out what's for dinner for American families every night, and that's a great outlet for my cooking uh, projects that I love to do. Um, and two shows in development that I started with my production company. I have a business partner and we have a production company that, um, we're working on a bunch of stuff with, um, as well. So it's just about being able to get up and running again, the way that we were and to be able to move forward the industry and, and spread the gospel again. I love that. I think that's hmm. kind of a perfect way to bring us into our lightning round, which is my favorite part of the ready podcast. And every sure. episode, just throw out a few questions. Um, so before all this madness, what is kind of a meal that you were really floored by in a restaurant? Ooh, I had a lot of just the most recent. There were three meals. When I think about what my last meals were before um, – the shutdown. There were three restaurant meals sort of in the last couple weeks before the shutdown that I've thought back to a million times because they were so exciting. Uh, one was um, at a little place on the Lower East Side called Wyla um, here mm. in New York, a beautiful Wonderful Thai. Um, Thai restaurant. The outdoor space, yes. Well, I didn't even get to go outdoors because it was the middle of winter. Uh, but but just okay. sitting in that cozy space downstairs, surrounded by the warm, you know, exposed brick, and the food we had was so great, and that was a really memorable meal. Um, and um, just about a week or maybe ten days before everything shut down, I went to Philly for the Philadelphia Chefs Conference and had an incredible meal at Laser Wolf, Michael Solomonoff's newest restaurant, which is sort of a set dinner um, with, you know, a million salatim, those little beautiful um, Middle Eastern starters um, that, and then, you know, a main kind of protein to go with it. And that was just a great meal. I loved the ease of it and the freshness and those beautiful, bold flavors. So that was really awesome. And also just a few weeks before um, we did a big splurge, it was my husband's parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And they came to New York and we ate at Le Cuckoo and we hadn't been there really since it opened. And, you know, it's not a place you can eat at every day. It's a, it's a, it's a fancy yeah. um, and luxurious it's also spot. It's rich and heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful space, too. And that's where Jeremy's parents wanted to go. Jeremy's parents are from Montreal. They love French food. They have a real passion for classic French cooking, and they'd heard so much about it. So we made a reservation a month in advance, and we, got, we all got super dressed up, and we went to Le Cuckoo, and it just exceeded expectations in every way. It was such an incredibly joyous meal um, and celebratory meal. And, um, and, of course, I bumped into one of the servers there who I had worked at Danielle with and hadn't seen in, you know, 10 years, and that was so <laughs> wonderful, such a great reunion. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I just, I just loved that we got in sort of totally intoxicated, not just by the wine, but the entire um, experience of the restaurant. It was so immersive and it just swept us away. And it reminds me now when I think back to it, just how, um, how restaurants can do that. You know, they really can um, make you forget about the outside world and for just a few hours transport you somewhere really magical. Amazing. Uh, what is something that's kind of exciting you in the food space right now? Could be a city, could be an ingredient, could be a concept. Oh. Hmm. Um, well, right now, I don't know. In the home cooking world, I feel like everything's exploding. I'm, I kind of laugh when I turn on the Instagram every day because I love how every we, we all get this pack mentality and all are making the same things remotely. We really are in this together apart, you know? Um, you feel isolated, but just know that everyone else is also making sourdough and banana bread with you. Um, and I kind of find that interesting that we are all craving the same things. We're craving comfort. Um, you know, I look to you, Jake and the feed feed time and again, when I want food that I know will be fun to make and look beautiful, but really satisfy what I'm craving. Um, and I kind of love that we are all cooking together even though we don't always feel that way um, because we're all over the world and separated um I also just really um I'm trying to think of like things that are inspiring me ingredient wise I mean travel wise there's so many places that that inspire me um I I think there's so many really right now, especially in New York, amazing modern Chinese restaurants um, that are doing great sort of regional Chinese cooking at the most elevated level. And I think that um, is what I'm craving now. Um, one, because it's all delicious. And two, because I think that um, we have a lot to learn from them as skilled chefs. Um, and three, because I think there is a, a sentiment um, in this country that, um, especially right now around China, that, um, that is not deserving. And, uh, and we all need to rally around our, our, you know, our fellow New Yorkers, our fellow, um, you know, we are all living through this all together and blame doesn't, doesn't help anything. And what, what we all need to do is appreciate each other. And, and I am relishing the incredible cooks from that part of the world who have so much to teach me. Amazing. That sort of sounded um, fumbled, of a, a, but you know what I mean? No, no, not at all. I think that's kind of perfect. And um, there was a beautiful piece in food and wine about that too. And pretty yes. much every publication has come out with some kind of piece about yep. why we need to be supporting Chinatown. This was obviously early on yep. for, restaurants shut down but even still now i think it's it, the concept of we're all in this together um is truly the the motif of this entire yeah. experience yeah for sure i feel like i'm not really doing and it to finish doing all, lightning very quickly but yeah <laughs> oh i mean no. i'm I'm, ask, fair, I'm answering very does. slowly that's kind okay, of the beautiful that's that's the beauty of it. To finish okay, it off, cool. we always play a game of fuck, marry, kill. Great. Um, and funny enough, you uh, already alluded it, uh, alluded to it because I picked kind of the viral things that everyone is cooking. So yes. you have banana bread, mm-hmm. sourdough, and whipped coffee. Oh, I kind of think that's an easy one for me. Um, I will go. fuck the whipped coffee. God, that sounds dirty. <laughs> but I will, because it's quick and easy. You know what I'm saying? Oh, there you uh, go. Yes, 100%. And I don't necessarily want to do it over and over again, but if it's a one-shot deal, then there you go. I will fuck the whipped coffee. I will marry the banana bread, because it never, ever gets old to me. It's just perfect and satisfying um, and, and sweet, but not too sweet in all the right ways. So I'll happily marry the banana bread. Um, oh, and I'll easily kill the sourdough. I'll tell you why. I want to kill everybody making sourdough. Um, I'm proud of you. You're the oh, best. Wow. You're That's better fair. than everyone else. But here's the thing. I've got two kids and a full-time <laughs> job, and I don't have fucking two seconds to be making your goddamn sou- sourdough right now, okay? I don't have time to wax poetic about my goddamn <laughs> starter. 
and I don't have hours just to sit around, um, you know, twirling my hair while you rise. I just don't have time for that. I can't possibly, I can't read an article that's more than two paragraphs these days because I've just got too much to do um, while I'm stuck at home managing the laundry and the cooking and the cleaning and the children and the homeschooling and the diapers and the exercise and the blah, 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 blah. So go kill yourself, sourdough. Sorry. <laughs> There's my rant. Wow, you, you think I'm angry? I just let out some rage on you, Jake. <laughs> It's going to be the most beautiful soundbite, this little, this little question that, and how it was answered. I love that. Are we allowed um, to swear on this podcast? Because I feel like I have a foul yeah, mouth. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people, I was like, we, we, we draw the line at slurs, but we, we keep yeah, it light fine. and casual. Right. Good. I should um, hope so. This has been absolutely incredible, Gail. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Feed think- Feed, for nourishing me in so many ways. Amazing. And can we give a little shout out today? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say, can we give a little shout out today to your colleague, Rachel, who's my friend who is in labor with her baby as we speak because she is a hero and I am rooting for her all the way. Yeah. It cannot be easy to give birth in this pandemic, but she is taking it all with stride and I'm so proud of her and we will all be there to feed her on the other side. Yeah. Can't wait to meet baby Max. Me too. Well, thank you so much, Gail. Um, This has been absolutely eye-opening. I think I speak for everyone who's going to listen to this and just feel like they know you a little bit better and also kind of understand a little bit about this crazy industry and how you've navigated it so beautifully. Thank you. Every day is an adventure. I'll tell you that. I feel very grateful. Perfect. Uh, Thank you everyone for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Feed Feed and myself at Jay Cohen and Gail at Gail Simmons Eats. Um, And we will see you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.